Hi, I'm Ray Didinger. And I'm Glenn Macnow, and this hour is sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. So when the pandemic hit in 2020 and sports shut down, Ray and I knew we needed an alternative way to entertain our audience. With no games to discuss, we started calling on some of our friends, Merrill Reese, Dick Vermeil, Larry Anderson, guys we know had fascinating stories of how life's path got them to where they are today. We conducted hour-long interviews, far longer than we normally allow on radio, and we gave the feature an obvious name, Tell Us Your Story. Well, we figured then that we would keep the feature going only until sports returned. Yeah, well, now it's nearly two years later. And while the games are back, we learned from our listeners that you want us to continue with Tell Us Your Story. So we've now conducted 100 of these conversations, Hall of Famers, local favorites, ballplayers, broadcasters, all with fascinating tales to tell. And we've heard stories of heroism and heartache and humble beginnings. And that's the theme of this show. We're call it Roots. And we start with Bob Clark talking about growing up in the mining town of Flin Flon, Manitoba. Well, well every community in Flin Flon had an outdoor rink. And we didn't get TV up there till I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 maybe. So everybody played hockey in the winters. All the kids, and it was a mining town where a lot of young families were there and lots of young kids. So there's always games going all the time, and we just played hockey. Could you talk a little bit about, because um, we've all associate the term Flin Flon with you. Now, people in Philadelphia don't know much about Manitoba or Flin Flon. Could you tell us a little bit about the town? And, uh, and I know that your dad, um, like most of the men in the town, worked, uh, made his living working in the mines. Yeah, my dad was a miner. He went underground, and they called them diamond drillers. Um, you know, he carried a big machine on your back and stuff. And it was, he... Uh, they, they lost some people in the mines. I had a friend who lost his dad there, and there were people who got hurt. It was it was a tough, hard job. The whole, like, he was underground, but it also had the crusher and the mill and the zinc plant and all those different places in the mine to work, and the majority of the men in town worked. There was no women working in those days in the mine. There are now. Did you think that was your future, um, and did you were you okay thinking that that was kind of what you were going to grow up into? Well, my dad really stressed school, education. You know, he used to say, if you get a good education, you won't have to work with your back like I have to. And eventually, he said to me once when I was a little older. He said, you better be a good hockey player because you're too damn lazy to work. <laughs> I didn't like cutting the grass. I didn't like shoveling snow. I didn't like doing anything other than playing hockey. But I had energy for hockey, nothing nothing else. Well, Bob Clark came from Flin Flon to Philadelphia, and he never left. He was a first-round draft pick. Another hockey player who came to Philadelphia and never left was our pal Keith Jones. Well, Jonesy wasn't a first-rounder. In fact, he didn't even expect to be drafted. Here's his story of how he learned on that day. That's a true story, Glenn. I actually worked at a go-kart track called Benmar, and it still exists to this day. It's got a mini-golf area there as well. I had worked there during the day. I had taken my paycheck and went to Flamborough Downs, which is a harness racing track that still exists. And I took my $82 and tried to hit a trifecta for the 
uh, entire racing card. And then I drove home, and my obviously no cell phones at the time. And when I got there, my dad was waiting on the porch, and he said, uh, you know, a big smile on his face. And I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? And he's like, uh, I go, what's happened? He goes, oh, you've been drafted. And I said, drafted? Are we going to war? <laughs> he said, no, you've been drafted to the NHL. So I can remember the uh, Capitals had then called the house prior to me arriving at home. That's how my parents had found out. But they had talked to my mom, and they told her, um, listen, we have a question for you where the Washington Capitals were calling from the draft table. There's a draft list of players that at that time was probably 1,500 to 3,000 kids that were registered on this list by pro scouting. They said, your son's not on the list. And we want to confirm his, his birth date to make sure I was eligible to be drafted. So my mom said, no, you know, November the 8th, 1968. And they said, great. That's what we thought. Listen to this. And they held the phone up while they made the announcement that in the seventh round, and the, I think 141st pick, the Washington Capitals were selecting Keith Jones. So, my mother got to listen to that on the phone and they informed her that tell your son to wait at home tonight at eight o'clock. Cause we're going to call him uh, after the draft concludes. And we would like to introduce ourselves to him. So I waited anxiously by the phone and received a phone call. I had talked to the Capitals twice during my junior B uh, season and they had said that they were with the Washington Capitals and I just couldn't fathom that at the time because I was a huge hockey fan as a 19 year old kid having no expectations that I would play in the NHL so I had ended up talking to these guys at eight o'clock including the general manager who was Brian Murray at that time and he informed me that uh, you know they really thought highly of me David Poyle was uh, David Poyle was the GM Brian Murray was the head coach sorry and David Poyle informed me that uh, Jack Button wanted to talk to me. He was one of the scouts. He, he said that he thought that I had a promising future. And then one of the other scouts named Sam McMaster, who was not one of their top guys, but was one of the guys that was doing a lot of running around, got on the phone and he said, Keith, I just want to tell you, I begged these guys to draft you and you're going to make it to the NHL. And I thought I looked at myself. I had skinny arms and a fat belly. I'd never worked out in my life. And I thought, this guy must be nuts. And sure enough, uh, you know, fast forward another five years or so, and I was playing in the NHL. So I owe a lot to Sam McMaster, who uh, said, uh, you know, I'm your godfather. You're going to make it. And he eventually left the Capitals that year and went on to be the general manager in L.A. And then we later on met and I was able to give him a big thank you. Anyone who ever saw Herschel Walker in or out of a football uniform know that he looked like a Marvel Comics superhero. He was 6 feet 1 and 225 pounds of muscle. But when he joined us for Tell Us Your Story, he talked about being bullied for being overweight in grammar school and finally using sports to find his way in life. I know, you're, you're right. You know, I, I, My mom just made me feel good. She told me I was big bone, and all the other kids wanted to told me I was fat. <laughs> And stuff, and I, uh, I had a speech impediment where I couldn't put a sentence together. And a lot of people don't know. For four years of my life, I never spoke in a classroom. You know, four years of my life, I sit in a corner and was afraid of mo- almost everything. And and uh, and a kid by the name of Anthony Logan beat me up, and I think that changed <laughs> my life. 
Uh, and then I had a coach, uh, Tom Jordan, that at the church used to come pick me up. You know, he coached my two older brothers, and he just realized that Herschel got to have something. And he took me out uh, at the church on Sunday. He used to talk to me about, you know, uh, believing in yourself, going out, trying your hardest. Don't worry about anyone else. Don't worry about what people say. And, and that sort of uh, helped me to feel good about myself. And I think that just changed a lot. But what people don't know about me, and as you're talking about it, is I didn't grow up as a little kid watching sports or wanted to be a, a football player or a track and field or anything, anything like that. I just wanted to do, go out and do try my hardest, and whatever happens, it happens. So, Herschel, how did the transformation happen, uh, presumably in high school, where you become – not just the kid who likes sports, not just the kid who plays sports, but really somebody who became a legendary, amazing uh, high school athlete. What was the, what was the transformation? Well, you know, after I got beat up, uh, you know, I was going home on the school bus, you know, crying, you know, overweight, going home crying, and and I remember getting home, turning the TV on, and Gilligan Island was on, and and I realized enough was enough. I remember this voice. And Herschel, my nickname is Bo. The, Bo, the voice said, Bo, enough is enough. No one else is going to beat you up again. And that's the day of my life. And people hear about the push-up sit-ups that I was doing. And this is 100% true. I started doing about 5,000 push-ups every day, 5,000 sit-ups every day. I started climbing trees, doing chin-ups out on a tree limb. And that summer, you know, I started to develop my body. I started to lose weight. I started running. And uh, with that coach uh, getting me mentally prepared uh it had nothing to do with sports i would get mentally prepared just to be the best horse walker can be to have people not pick on me dick vermeil grew up in calistoga california wine country raised by his mom and his dad who operated the family business a garage behind the house in our interview with coach vermeil he talked about spending all those hours all those years with his dad and the lessons that were imparted well you know that the garage was right behind the house, and so I ate three meals a day with my dad growing up, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we had great uh, mutual respect and discipline within our family, you know, and the food was always good. Meals are still a very important part of our lives because that's how we were raised. That's how we lived. But the garage was right there, and when I graduated from grammar school, the eighth grade, the next day, I went to work part-time in the garage full-time during the summer and started from grassroots of cleaning parts to learning to put parts together to learning to put brake systems together to, uh, you know, fuel systems together to uh, uh, engines together. So, you know, I grew, and it was a great experience, and it's amazing how much that carries over to today. I know Dick um, Dick's talks a lot about his, his dad, Big Louie, and uh, um, and I remember the the picture you have you had on your desk all those years was the picture of your dad walking to the garage. It was uh, yeah. it was a shot of it was a shot of his back as he was heading to um, a yeah. place that was kind. They called it the Owl Garage because it was because he literally worked all night. Yeah, in fact, the Freddie Annie Vineyard where we get our grapes, and my great grandfather owned a piece of years ago. Gene Frediani, I think, is the man responsible for nicknaming my dad's garage the Owl Garage for what you just said, Ray, <laughs> because he would eat dinner and walk back out and go to work till he got his work done, and many times it was in the middle of the night, so they nicknamed it the Owl Garage. 
Ray and I had the pleasure last fall of interviewing Mark Howe on Tell Us Your Story. And while Mark became a Hall of Fame defenseman in his own right, he was never even the best player in his own family. Of course, he's the son of Gordie Howe, who earned the nickname Mr. Hockey. We asked Mark, at what age did he realize that his father was kind of a big deal? Um, I don't know. I, I think it was... Uh... Oh, I probably around the age of maybe seven or eight. Uh, you know, I think uh, other than that, you're, I mean, we used to go to the Christmas parties. I used to go to some games and, you know, my brother Marty and I, we always played together. So we, uh, we were busy playing our games, but um, yeah, I think when you start uh, getting a little more awareness of what's going on around you, uh, you know, that's when it kind of really set in. So, I mean, everybody wanting his autograph everywhere you went, didn't matter uh, what city, what state, what country, uh, you know, he was well-known around uh, all of North America for sure. Well, I, I remember reading uh, an interview you did, and someone asked basically the same question, but what was it like? What was, what were your memories of being the son of Gordie Howe? And you said the night that stands out in your mind was November the 10th, 1963. Uh, you were just eight years old, and that was the night that your dad scored goal number 545 to pass Rocket Richard. Uh, and he did it at the Detroit and the Olympia. Uh, and I remember you saying you thought the ovation would never end, that it just went on and on and on. And you thought how cool it was to be the only person in the building who could say, yep, that's my dad. Yeah, I remember I was sitting in Section 7. So, uh, and, I, and actually three weeks prior, uh, the, uh, dad had scored against Montreal at home. Uh, to tie the record, and then he, you know, and then I, I think the pressure got on. He, he went into about a three-week drought, and then he scored again against uh, against Montreal. And yeah, I was there for both, but uh, yeah, like I said, uh, that's my fondest memory in all of hockey. So uh, to sit there and, and uh, uh, you know experience something like that, and I know uh, the people in Detroit when when Dad uh, was in his final year, and uh, Scotty Bowman picked him to play in the All Star game in Detroit. The ovation there was great, and I, I wasn't there um, for that, but there's no way that it could have uh, uh, superseded uh, you know, what took place back in 64. In doing Tell Us Your Story interviews, often there were surprises. One of these was our interview with Phillies broadcaster Larry Anderson. When we asked Larry about his growing up in Oregon, he told us something we didn't know, that his father, who was an airline pilot, was killed in a plane crash when Larry was just 13 years old. So, and back in those days, in 67, we were very close with our neighbors. We didn't lock our doors or anything. And so my dad had a flight. My mom was back in Nebraska. So was my sister and I home alone. She was 15. I was 13. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just got a call that uh, there had been an accident. Six in the morning, my sister woke me up and I thought, what an accident? Well, I guess, I guess you'll be okay. And because when you think accident, you think, I think car accident. Yeah. Um, then an hour later, another call, and uh, my sister's looking at me, and I'm, I'm kind of looking, like, what, what's going on? And then a pilot that flew with my dad showed up at the house, um, and then I knew, wait a minute, something, something's not right. And then so my sister said he was in a plane crash. So he took off uh, in a snowstorm in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and uh, apparently the, the tail had frozen up. Uh, they had problems getting the plane out of the hangar. He got stuck with a tow truck pulling it out or one of those towing machines. And apparently the tail had frozen up. So as they took off down the runway, they kind of didn't have 
they had some control, but at one point they got ahead, they got above the mountain. They ended up crashing into altitude wise, but, um, they just, they, they couldn't recover from what was going on mechanically. So that, uh, I, I never knew that. I never, so it's you and your mom and your sister. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I never, never knew that. No, yeah. uh, no, so no. That was, that was 67. Um, mm-hmm. And that was actually I was in Portland at the time. And Larry, you're um, only you're already, only you're only you're only 13 years old at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, uh, I guess, I guess you could say it was a little devastating, a little yeah. dramatic. Yeah. Uh, I was, we had the, the Donna Reed family. I mean, I, I was so blessed to grow up just for the short time, but to, to have that family. Uh, very, very close, uh, very close with my dad, my mom, my sister. Uh, so uh, it was, it was, a, it was tough. But uh, he was going to be, he was already had been transferred. But as I said, he, they asked him to stay in Portland for another year, or so or another month, and that's yeah. when the accident happened. Um, but my mom and sister went ahead and moved on up to Seattle or Bellevue, just the suburb of Seattle, mm-hmm. and uh, I stayed in Portland to finish my. I was with the 13-year-old Babe Ruth All-Stars, and we were going to the state championship. So I stayed with uh, a, a family that was very close with our family. They're a friend of mine, Rob Case, and his parents were my godparents. So I stayed with them through that summer and then moved up to Seattle to start high school as a ninth grader. And uh, that's, that's kind of how things got started. Um, so I went up there. It, it was tough because I was, you know, I played in sports and, and getting to know all these people in Portland, and I was going to go to uh, high school with these guys, but all of a sudden that all changed. That is a very powerful story, and we appreciate Larry Anderson for sharing that with us. And one of the great things about Tell Us Your Story is people really give us a good sense of where they came from. And coming up, we're going to have Troy Vincent. Brian Dawkins, Deuce Staley, and more, as Ray Dinger and Glenn Mack now do the Roots edition of Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. With Ray, I'm Glenn on 94 WIP. I'm Ray Dinger here with Glenn Mack now, and you're listening to the best of Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. That highlight you heard was Eagles Hall of Famer Troy Vincent. Troy grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, in a home where his single mother was a victim of domestic abuse. Today, Troy is a vice president with the National Football League, and when he joined us on Tell Us Your Story, he talked about bringing his experiences to a league that, like the rest of society, is trying to solve the scourge of domestic violence. Oh, we've, we've learned immensely, and I, I do believe Am I satisfied? I'm not satisfied on where we are as a culture. Forget my employer. Forget the National Football League. We as a nation, we as a people, we as a community, Ray, we're still failing these young women and young girls in the area of domestic violence and sexual assault. We continue to allow this to happen in our presence we have learned as a sports organization, it's a delicate situation. We cannot re-victimize victims. 
There are things that we need to put in place to protect victims. At the same time, the proper due diligence on the side of either the, the perpetrator. But we have so much work to do because we're still talking about it today. So much work to do. Well, I know with you, the way you put it, um, and I'm, I'll just read. I'll just read your quote because I thought it was so powerful. Mm-hmm. You said, "As men, we must speak up and say domestic violence will not." happen in my home, in my neighborhood, on my campus, on my team, in my workplace, or in my circle of family or friends. As men, we cannot be silent. Um, And I think you spoke for a lot of people when you said that, because for a lot of, for way, way too long, I think society kind of looked the other way and just thought, well, that's, you know, let, we'll let those people work that out. But Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't, you know, you can't be a bystander in something like this. You have to get involved. And if the NFL can get involved in a leadership kind of way and set the right example, that can only help. That's correct. And, and, and Ray, what I meant by that, just to summarize that, what you just said, what does your, we all ask ourselves this individual question, what does our silence imply? And when we are silent on these issues that affect all of us, that means we're okay with it. And we can't. We as men, we can't. Our silence implies that we're okay with what's going on. When you, um, I mean, you are a VP in the league now, director of uh, football operations. I mean, you have a position of real power there, and you have real influence, and you have a voice. Um when you get situations like this, when an NFL player is found to be involved in domestic violence, um, what is your feeling? I mean, do you think that he should have a pathway back to the NFL? Uh, do you think there's a way of rehabilitation? Uh, how do you, I mean, if, as someone who actually lived it, as someone who actually had it happen in their own home to their own mother, how do you feel about the guys that have been, have been found guilty of that and finding, a, finding their way back to the NFL? So, Ray, I would begin, that's been an evolution and a maturity on my behalf, because where I was in 1987 and 86, 87 and 88, where I'm at today, in 2021, my original attitude and feelings towards it was lock them up, throw away the key, don't want any explanations. As I've matured, worked with different councilmen, senators, you know, been part of legislation, traveled around the country, I have come to realize that same empathy that my Lord and Savior extends to me. We have to extend that because what research and data shows is that these individuals, whether they're a couple, whether they're married, there's a 90% chance that they'll, they'll return back together. So what does that mean? That means that we need to do some intervention on both um, use the term perpetrator for the purposes of this uh, this discussion. For those who have committed, and I would say this crime, to educate both what the league is doing and what we have to be here, it is there's a policy in place. And what we have learned, which my colleagues have learned that had no experience in this space, and I think with Lisa, Field, Lisa Friel coming on board, that each of these are individual cases that have their own personality. So rather than saying someone is guilty or not guilty, there's a process. There's a due process that has to take place. 
again, Ray, this is a 50-year-old speaking now. But when in my mid-20s, in my early 30s, I was wondering how do we let these men continue to walk the streets after they inflicted this damage to this child or to this woman? So I do believe we've made some, some – there's been progress, but we have a long way to go because we're still discussing it. You know, we, the numbers have not changed. And when the data – we live in a, a world now where what does the data say? What does the science say? Well, the data and the science say that this is a, this is a, a, a pandemic. We got real challenges here, and we as men, the call of action is to men. We can do better. We have to do better. Well, Vice Gehema had two fine careers, first as an NFL player and then as a popular broadcaster here in Philadelphia. He played his first six NFL seasons elsewhere before signing as a free agent with the Eagles in 1992. In our Tell Us Your Story interview with Vi, he talked about how then-GM Harry Gamble lured him to Philadelphia with a single ticket to what turned out to be a classic game. The, the week I came here was in March, I think it was March 30th, 1992. I remember that date because when I came and worked out, they asked me if I would stay over the weekend while they worked out a deal, and then they would introduce me on Monday to the, to the media. And I said, oh, you know, I don't want to stay, but Harry Gamble slipped me an envelope, and uh, we were staying at the, you remember the, uh, the uh, it was a day's end, no, it was a holiday inn at the stadium, right? I, yeah. Yeah. So, I'm walking back from the stadium to the Holiday Inn, and I open up the envelope, and in the envelope was one single ticket. And the ticket just – it was to a basketball game at the, um, at the Spectrum. And, and that was my reward for staying over the weekend. Sixers, we hope? No, it was a college game. Oh. oh you know, well, he went I, all out. <laughs> the, the college game was Duke-Kentucky. Oh, oh my goodness! The, the Christian Leitner game. Oh my March, goodness! March thirtieth, nineteen ninety-two. I was sitting in the rafters and saw Grant Hill throw that hail mary. Wow! To Christian Leitner, he bounces the ball once, turns around, and fires. Yeah. I was in the stand. I was in the stands because I was staying over that weekend, so that they could announce me. Uh, you know, on Monday, uh, having just signed. That <laughs> so that, that I feel like. Uh, you know, all these these crazy things that have happened in my life, that may have been one of the crazier That's things. That's a great one. The very weekend of the uh, you know Kentucky-Duke game, I was sitting in the stands. Doug Collins came to Philadelphia in 1973 as the number one pick in the draft. He joined the worst team in NBA history and helped lead it back to basketball prominence. But what Collins also joined was a unique community of Philadelphia athletes, players from different sports who formed a brotherhood as neighbors and lifelong friends. Man, well said. Well, well said. Uh, you know, uh, when I went there in 73, uh, the Phillies, I think, won 55 games that year, and I think Steve Carlton won 27 of them. And the Eagles, I, I, I know, were the worst team uh, in the NFL. And, uh, and Ron Jaworski became my next-door neighbor. In fact, you can talk to Ron, but I gave him the nickname Jaws right before he went to the Super Bowl. I said, you just can't be Ron Jaworski. You're not the Polish rifle. You like to talk. You're Jaws. You're going to be Jaws and stuff. So he sort of became uh, uh, the, the Ron Jaworski that we know. But, yeah, I had a bunch of buddies. We lived in a development called Alluvium. We had, 
you know, I had a backyard where the pickleball, which is now the the rage. I, I owned uh, one of the franchises. I had a pickleball court in my backyard, a swimming pool. Guys would come into my backyard. We'd play pickleball. We'd play hoops. We'd swim. And you're right. It was a, it was a great time, Ray. And I did have a lot of endearing friendships with the other team. Mike Schmidt today is still one of my best friends. And, uh, uh, you know, need to see him uh, about a month ago. I He was doing a, one of the games. He invited me in to see uh see him and I brought my grandsons in to spend an evening with Mike Schmidt and uh, they're both big baseball players. So yeah, yeah. The friendships Ray uh, and Glenn uh, were, were so, were so wonderful and we all pull for each other because we knew how tough it is to win. Doug, I want to uh, play a game with you, which is uh, kind of, I'm going to mention some of your old teammates and players. Just give me 15 seconds, top of your head. Okay. Yep. Billy Cunningham. Uh, my mentor, my big brother, uh, Billy came back to play, and the year I played with him uh, was a big year for me growing up. He took me under his wing, and then I'll never forget that that scream Billy Cunningham made when uh, he blew out mm-hmm. his ACL yeah. against the Knicks running down the court, and uh, it broke yeah. my heart. Uh, Daryl Dawkins. <laughs> Chocolate Thunder. Uh, he was sort of uh, my, my little brother. We had the same agent, Herb Rudoy. Daryl uh, lived with me on occasions where he'd come in and spend time with my family and I. And just absolutely uh, one of the neatest uh, guys you could ever meet. Fun-loving to the max. George McGinnis. Oh, man. Uh, I, I saw him play at Louisville in the Indiana-Kentucky All-Star Game my senior year. I saw him throw up 53 points, 30 rebounds in an Indiana-Kentucky All-Star Game. And I said, that guy's playing a different game than I'm playing. But George really brought back the credibility to our team. And once once we got George McGinnis, we were heading in the right direction. I'll do one more, and that, of course, is Doc. Basketball royalty. Um, uh, just uh, spectacular uh, great teammate, and I, I remember meeting him at uh, Cutcher's uh, Country Club when they were playing a, the game up there. We used to play outdoors. My first vision of him is walking onto the court. He's got both balls palmed. Uh, it's night, the sun's the lights. He goes up and he dunks them both at the same time, and I go, "That's Dr. J." But uh, just he—he he, once he came, we knew eventually there was going to be a championship. Our last few stories in this episode have focused on coming to Philadelphia, but our next few focus on leaving. Phil Martelli was a local high school and college coach for 42 years. He was head coach of St. Joseph's University Hoops for 24 seasons. It was a great career, but everything comes to an end. In 2019, Phil was let go as coach of the Hawks. We asked him if he saw it coming. Yeah, No, I, I, I didn't see it coming, um, and, and Honestly, if you look back, I I didn't have a great year my last year. Um, uh, I could have been much better uh, coaching, uh, but uh, and I can remember driving away from campus that day, and it was my family. Uh, it, it was all, all similar to the feeling that I had walking off the court. Uh, in 04 against Oklahoma State uh, oh my, my family is my family all right is my family all right and 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 then when you take that circle bigger it was those players like those players were there because I asked them to be there so how how was it going to impact them 
So um, it was uh, uh, extraordinarily painful. Um, and at, at no point in time when when this opportunity came up at Michigan, did it get easier or conversations with ESPN? Oh, well, or even people saying, well, you know, the greatest have been fired. It, it's still, and I said it at that time, it wasn't just, it wasn't a job because I never saw it as a job. It was a way of life. And basically my way of life was, was not just turned upside down. It was, is torn out of me. And, um, uh, it, it, it's a long, long time to get over because of the pain that, that, that my family, that my assistant coaches, that their families had to, uh, take on. And I kept thinking it's because of me that all these people are feeling so lousy, um, and so worthless. And that, that was, that will that's a feeling that I'll never get over um uh and i i i feel it now i feel it as i speak to you that that there are so many different pockets of people that were dramatically impacted Brian Dawkins is a pro football hall of famer and a player who connected with the Philadelphia fans in a deep and enduring way but pro football is a business and when the Eagles decided to move on from Brian Dawkins and it was time for him to leave, it was devastating. Dawkins was still feeling that pain when he joined us for Tell Us Your Story. I, I lost a member of my family. That's how I felt. I literally was I literally was in mourning for, oh, wow, for about a month. Like I would get, you know, sad and just start tearing up when I think about things. And even though I was in Denver and I was doing everything that I could to be there for my teammates, when I got to myself, my mind would start to wander. I start thinking, but I was literally, and I, and I began to, reason why I know that I was in, in a sense of mourning is because I, I did the research on, like, why, why am I feeling this way, man? What's going on? And then when you look up trauma, you look up mourning, um, the things that happen to you and how you, the, the kind of uh, places you go through as you go through your mourning, that's, that's what I felt. And then during that same time, we lost Jim. So, like, that losing Jim and then losing, you know, uh, my, 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 my broad family, the, the Eagles, um, that hurt tremendously. What I had to quickly come to, though, is this. I just spoke about pain. I spoke about discomfort. I spoke about growing through where you find yourself. So I had to put that into practice. So when I got to Denver, I, I, I had to focus and be 100% present for my teammates, for that organization, and listening. What am I supposed to do while I'm here? There's individuals that needed to hear some of the things that I, I was – they needed to hear some of the things that I was saying in how I conducted myself, not in my words, but how I conducted myself, how I handled myself as a professional, how I handled myself, how I practiced even. Some, it was some, some young guys there and older guys needed to see that. And so I needed to be other things. I also led, you know, Bible study when I was there. They, they actually fired the, uh, the chaplain when I was there. So I had to go and start doing Bible studies there as well. So I grew in so many ways there. And it, well, it blessed me to be the man that I am today. But, but I, I did more quite a bit. 
Let's close with this one. Deuce Staley was a fan favorite in Philadelphia as an Eagles player and then as an assistant coach. Many people, including us, had hopes that Deuce would be considered for the Eagles head coaching job when it opened after Doug Peterson left last year. That didn't happen, of course. Deuce talks here about his hopes of getting the job and disappointment in having to move on. He left for the Lions soon after that, and let it be noted that Deuce had not done any media interviews after that until joining us last spring. It, it was first just thinking about the interview process itself for you to be mentioned as a potential head coach is awesome. Um, you just think about all the guys that coach for a long period of time, never get a chance to get the interview, never get a chance to sit down in front of their GM or the owner. Usually, you know, with the GM, of course, you sit down with him and maybe you get, you know, an hour and some change and you're going over the draft, you're going over uh, free agency and, 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 you know, stuff like that, but not in that setting where you're interviewing to be the head coach. Uh, I thought both of my interviews were awesome, man. I really did. I put a lot of a lot of time um, into those interviews, and it was a learning process the first time. Being a, never walked through the door before, never um, had a chance to be uh, interviewed f- to be a head coach on any level, and um, being able to have a, a chance was just totally awesome. So I soaked in a lot of information. I was able to go back and – just write down, study, change this, add this, take away this, you know, and just kind of prepare myself for the next opportunity. And then, of course, the next opportunity comes. Like you said, Doug got let go, and here it is again, and I get a chance to get another interview. I'm excited, super excited, because, once again, there are not many coaches that get this opportunity. So I go in, I'm prepared. Um, It was awesome. It was awesome. And you could tell that even with the interview process, the first one I had compared to the second one, you could tell there was growth on both sides. So there was growth with that, with what they did as, you know, interviewing uh, me questions and, you know, which, which way they wanted to go. And there was growth coming from me learning from the first interview. And I, I tell you, it was awesome. And when I look at both of those interviews, I look at it like, hey, you know, you don't, you asked the hot girl to the prom twice and she told you no. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop asking, Ray. I'm gonna ask again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna keep asking. So I look at those opportunities are is like great, man. There's nothing negative that came out of that, except of course I didn't get the job. But still, I learned from that and move on. So you say, just to just to make sure to clarify, you feel you got a fair chance, but they went another way, no hard feelings? That's on my end, yes. I feel I got a fair chance. They, they chose to go differently, and that's their choice. Of course, that's Mr. Lurie's choice. That's Howie's choice. And um, I did what I had to do. I went in and I interviewed. It was great. It was awesome. Um, it was a long interview, over three hours. Um, and like I said, I felt like I nailed every question, every scenario, every situation. I felt like I nailed it. Um, but once again, it, you know, 
I don't control the narrative. Mr. Lurie does, how he does, those guys. And they decide to go another route. Got a great head coach down with Nick. Nick would do awesome there. Trust me. He would do awesome. And um, things are going good there, and things are going good here now. Ray, I got to tell you, hearing these again uh, makes me appreciate them all the more. And also, listen, you're the lifer here in Philadelphia, but hearing guys like Bob Clark and Dick Vermeil and Larry Anderson, who never left, just gives me a sense of, you know, uh, I, I know it's cliche to say what a great sports town it is, but really how people who come here really connect with the fans in the city. Deuce, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Deuce is a great example of that. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll never find anybody that came from further away than Vaisikahema, who <laughs> came from Tonga and, you know, then the Brigham Young and then bounced around the NFL uh, a million stops. But when he came to Philadelphia, he knew he had come home. And uh, I think you see that story repeated over and over again. And, boy, in the course of doing these interviews or tell us your story, we heard it a lot. I mean, we often say Philadelphia's a special place, and I really think that this, I really think that this series is proof of that. Yeah, and the way this show laid out today, right, we, it, it, and, and by the way, you organized all this and did a great job, but Bobby Clark growing up, Keith Jones getting drafted, Herschel Walker as a kid getting bullied, and then kind of by the last few interviews about guys having to leave and the pain that Phil Martelli and Brian Dawkins and Deuce felt leaving um, is really pretty profound. Yeah, it is, and in a sense, and I think they all kind of said this each in their own way, um, they left, but they didn't leave. You know, their heart was always going to be in Philadelphia. And you have a feeling that all of these guys, in one way or another, are going to come back here. You just know it's going to happen. And uh, their stories were really compelling. And it was, great to, it was great to have an opportunity to relive all of this with all of these guys. Well, as we said at the start, we've now done 100 episodes of Tell Us Your Story. And we're having fun just kind of reliving them and putting together these best of episodes. And we'll have more coming up. We thank everybody for listening. He's Ray Dinger. I'm Glenn Macnow. This has been a special episode of Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Well, that was, uh, that was World Back Live now. That was pretty special, right? <laughs> I just don't know that the listeners can understand what we record and what's live, so now, now we're back. By the way, before, I, I want to talk about the one we're doing next week and, and a few we have planned ahead, but just listening to Deuce at the end of that, Yes. Um, just how classy he was. Yes, totally. About not getting the head coaching job. And, um, you know, they had a kind of a rough season in Detroit, but it appears to me he has earned a lot of respect and ended up being a coach at the Senior Bowl um, and hopefully does get that opportunity somewhere. I, I truly believe he will. Uh, and I think it was that to me was very significant that the head coach of the Lions, Dan Campbell, stepped aside and let Deuce run everything down in Mobile. And listen, every team was represented. All the front offices were there. The owners were there. The general manager were there. And they got to see Deuce Staley be a hands-on head coach with this year's college crop. And that can only, only help him. I think, I think whoever hires him, and I know it's going to happen, is going to be getting themselves a really good head coach. I hope so. I hope he gets there. He's certainly a smart guy, likable guy, all of that. All right. So this was, as we said, we had done 100 Tell Us Your Stories Put together three best ofs. Next week is the third. What do we got next week? Next week is a show we're calling Nice to Meet You. It's a, a bunch of our subjects um, talking about meeting other famous people. So we have Jeremy Roenick talking about the first when he was a little boy and met Gordie Howe. Love that story. It's a great story. <laughs> Love that. You know, Willie O'Ree, the first uh, African-American player in the NHL, talking about when he got to meet his idol, who was Jackie Robinson. Uh <laughs> 
One of my favorites twice. is Twice. Then met him twice. Yeah. And one I think one of my favorites, and we heard a lot about this, how many people loved hearing from Dave Killer Hansen from Slapshot talking about when he first met Paul Newman on the set of Slapshot back in the day. Right. And uh, another one, you know, Jim Gardner uh, from Channel 6, who came and talked about uh, his his interview with George W. Bush. Yeah. Talking yeah, and when they when they shared their their notes about baseball, so there's a lot of really really good stuff. That'll be a lot of fun, and also I know coming up scheduled in future weeks, um, uh, Todd Harriman's uh, who had a nice ten year career with the Eagles, and Dave Poulin uh, of the Flyers. We got those scheduled, and a few other uh, special ones moving ahead. One that you're uh, angling to get that hopefully we'll nail down next week. I hope so. Anyway, uh, as always, it's been fun. What do you got planned for the rest of the day? Um. I don't know. Sounds like nothing's a perfectly except sometimes nothing's a great answer. Yeah, no, I I think uh, a long walk with the bulldog probably. That's a fine thing. All, All right. right. Well, I got out of town company coming in, Ray. I know you do. The the Boston wing of the family is actually, I believe, arriving currently at Philadelphia International Airport. I saw the picture. Yeah, yeah, the kids are all excited getting on a plane. Uh, so here's what's going on tonight. My two sons and their spouses are going out to dinner at Ripplewood. Ah, going to get the burger? I hope. The one doesn't eat red meat, but I'm sure at least one of them will. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Judy and I, the wife and I, are taking care of the three little grandsons at our house. Going to be a lot of wrestling on the ground with Pops. Yeah, you'll sleep well tonight. <laughs> as soon as they're down, I'm I'm going to be down. Anyway, uh, Ray, it's always a pleasure. I will uh, well I'll talk to you during the week. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm taking tomorrow off, actually, because everybody's in town. Oh, that's so right. I will be uh, just not working tomorrow. So Good. Well, I'll be here. Have a great one. I, okay. I know you will. Dan Wilson, great job of producing. You know how much we always appreciate it. Go Birds Radio is coming up with James and Elliot. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you soon right here on 94 WIP.